Thank you very much, Peter, for the, the warm welcome. And uh, of course, it's, it's really nice to be back in, in Hamilton, Hamilton Baptist. And uh, of course, we have a, a long history uh, with this church, <clears throat> being the church of my favourite mother and father-in-law, and being the church where Heidi, of course, <clears throat> spent many of her formative years. So it's lovely to be, to be back here uh, among you all this morning. And, uh, well, we really trust and pray that at Fast Carly House this weekend, the you know the rest of the church will really, really have been blessed and encouraged and challenged. Um, we also want that for us this morning too, as we as we worship together and as we look at God's word together. So, what I thought I'd do this morning is have a look at uh, <clears throat> Mark's gospel and uh, <clears throat> of. Uh, the, the PowerPoint uh, real key. If we could have the first uh, slide uh, up for Mark's Gospel. The subject this morning is just so, um, you know, it's just so, so vast in a sense. But in many ways, that's what the Gospels are all about. We can see here that, uh, you know, who is Jesus? The purpose of the Gospel really records, a record that tells us who Jesus is and why we should believe in him. I'm at a bit of a disadvantage because I have my reading glasses on and I can't read that screen there. <laughs> but uh, <coughs> we, you know, when we look at the Gospels, <coughs> and particularly, you know, really what they're about is telling us who Jesus is. And uh, when we read these Gospels, we see that there are things recorded. There is teaching recorded. <clears throat> there are events recorded. What Jesus did, what he said, how he acted, how he behaved. And all these things are pointing. And, and the writers of the Gospels, they're writing for <clears throat> their own generation initially and also for those who come after them. And of course that's for people like us today as well. And everything they write, and everything they, they put on, that, on these pages, they're pointing to the identity of Jesus Christ. And uh, so we come to Mark's Gospel, and of course Mark is just such a fast-moving, vivid, detailed Gospel. I mean, it's the shortest of the Gospels, but uh, he gets right down to business, right at the, the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what he says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, and he gets straight into what Jesus uh, was about and what he was doing and saying and so on. And so Mark is writing for the church of his generation <clears throat> to record for them, to record for us as well, an accurate record of the good news that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And uh, <clears throat> often, you know, we, we find that uh, Mark is moving along very quickly. He records the, the, the calling of the first disciples. He gets into what Jesus was doing right away, demonstrates the divinity of Jesus, of his teaching, of his healing. He shows the Lord Jesus in the first few chapters of his gospel having authority over disease when it's recorded as healing someone with a deadly disease of, of leprosy. He shows how the Lord Jesus has complete control over nature when he rebukes a storm. He shows how the Lord Jesus 
has complete control over the demonic when he rebukes uh, a demon. And then, of course, when he raises someone from the dead, showing how the Lord Jesus had power over death itself. And that's even before we get to chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. So you can see how Mark is really keen to, to get us focused on who Jesus actually is. And then in chapter 6, uh, we'll move on to the next uh, <clears throat> point because we're talking here about the Lord Jesus in Galilee. And we're going to be reading together in chapter 6 <clears throat> how the Lord Jesus <clears throat> he sends out the 12, his 12 disciples. And they're going to preach, and they're going to teach, and they're going to have authority. And then in chapter 6, there's a sad section where wicked King Herod beheads Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And then in verse 30 of chapter 6, we see the disciples are returning from their mission, and they're reporting to the Lord Jesus for, for debriefing and so on. So it's a busy, busy time, and this coming and going, and the Lord Jesus and his disciples, they desperately need rest, and they need food, and they just need some time away to sit and to debrief and to talk, and so on. Of course, the Lord Jesus would be grieving as well at the loss of his cousin. Just moving on to the next uh, <clears throat> slide here. And we see this is the kind of places, and this is Capernaum and Galilee, these are the kind of places that Jesus would be and these are the kind of places that Jesus would have sent his disciples. And then, of course, now they were back, uh, still on the shores of the Galilee area. And moving on to the next uh, slide, just gives an idea of what Galilee is, is like. So what I'd like us to do is to, just to think that we are there this morning, but we're not, we weren't able to go to Fascali, but what we're going to do is we're going to go to Lake Galilee, and just think, well, there we are in Lake Galilee, and we're among the wider kind of entourage of Jesus, and we're following on, and we're looking on at the scene, and there, there is 12 disciples have all returned from their, their teaching and their preaching, and, and they're absolutely amazed at what happened with the authority that Jesus gave them. <coughs> But, well, actually, they're quite tired as well. And yet the crowds are all coming to Jesus. And, and they all want more from Jesus. And so, that's the scene as we'll read it together. And we'll read together chapter 6, Mark 6, from verse 30 to 44. Mark 6, <clears throat> from verse 30 to 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him, all that they'd done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. 
But Jesus answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five. Oh, and, and two fish. And Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. <clears throat> they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Sure God will bless to us the public reading of his inspired scripture. And so <clears throat> here we have this incredible event. And uh, <clears throat> just looking, we're just going to go down the text together. Verses 30 to 32, there's this excitement. Uh, the apostles report back. They've been out, they've been preaching and teaching in the villages. And now they're going to get some debriefing from the master teacher. Uh, from their master and of course all around the Lord Jesus people were wanting to share people wanted a bit of the Lord Jesus and people were coming and going and, and, and wanted to hear more of him in this town in Galilee there was this hectic coming and going and this demands demands on his time and so on no rest no respite and of course spiritual work is, is hard work so the Lord Jesus was concerned for the disciples. They were hungry and they were tired. And so he called them away to a quiet place to rest. To, <clears throat> just to recuperate, to debrief and to talk. And so they got a boat at the side of the lake and then they sailed away. But at verse 33, eh, we're told that they were spotted leaving. Let's just move on to the next day. Eh, slide and uh, just gives an idea of some of the remote areas in Galilee. Moving on to the next one and you can see just uh, some of these areas where the Lord Jesus could have taken his disciples. Moving on again and uh, we can see the kind of roads that run along the side of Galilee and of course uh, as they were spotted leaving the boat would be slow moving and it would be very easy to keep up and even maybe overtake the boat and this is what was happening. And so this whole crowd was following the boat and following the Lord Jesus. And of course, when they arrived at a, what Mark describes at a solitary place, well, what happened? The place was crowded, just moving to the next slide. I can imagine it was something like that, moving to the next slide and uh, just seeing uh, the whole place, just moving on one more, to seeing all these <clears throat> people all around. And I can imagine that's what it would be like in this solitary, so-called solitary place. It had been solitary, but uh, there, there they were, the, the crowd, they were a large crowd, eager, waiting crowd. And what did they see in Jesus? What was it they saw in him? And in verse 34, Mark tells us, as the boat scraped up on the shore, 
the disciples and the Lord Jesus, exhausted and hungry though they were, and although they desperately needed rest, we see this word often used of the Lord Jesus, where he had no thought whatsoever for himself. And, uh, and Mark uses that word. Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. It's a word that's not used very often and it's normally used by Jesus or used of Jesus. And, uh, <clears throat> and so here, here we find it. It's a word that sort of speaks of being so moved, so moved with pity as to take action about something. We can often be moved, but not actually do anything about it. But Jesus wasn't like that. He was moved, moved with compassion. And so the Lord Jesus, we can see in him pure, undiluted, raw concern for the crowds. We'll get that again in Mark chapter 8 and verse 2, the same compassion. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, he, saw, he said the Samaritan saw and he had compassion on him. The man who was telling the parable is the man who knows all about that intensity of compassion. And, uh, <clears throat> and so this compassion drove the Lord Jesus. It did, uh, <clears throat> this compassion made the Lord Jesus do things that quite frankly were shocking. Just a chapter or two before it, we see that Jesus reaches and he touches a person who had that highly contagious and horrible disease of leprosy. And he touches him. Why? Because he saw, he had compassion on him and then he healed him. And so, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus, a model of compassion, cares for the disciples. He cares for the crowds that he could see all around. And he cares today for each one of us. And that's something we shouldn't miss from this. When we're looking at the Lord Jesus, looking at who he is, looking at his character. The Jesus who had compassion on the crowds. The Jesus who has compassion on those who follow him as disciples. Is the same Jesus who has that same compassion and care for each of us today. And so, here, what is he to do? He puts his tiredness aside and he starts to teach the crowds. And he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. You know, we think about a shepherd today, <clears throat> often we get all kind of misty-eyed and things when we think about shepherds. And uh, this kind of soft, kind of benevolent, helping the weak and the helpless and the wounded, uh, poor lambs and so on. Well, it includes all of that. But it was more than that. Because here's a picture of a crowd that was leaderless, that was directionless, that was without purpose, that was needing a true shepherd, someone who gives direction, someone who gives leadership, someone who gives and stills purpose, someone who is strong and true and trustworthy, the kind of things we look for in our leaders and our statesmen and stateswomen today. And when we are very often disappointed. But we see this in Jesus. Someone with care, with compassion. Someone who would lead with authority. And of course the Middle, the Middle Eastern concept of a good shepherd is someone who is strong and who leads from the front. 
then Jesus is no less so today. Today, <clears throat> to be trusted, to be believed in, to be followed, he will never let us down. Never let us down. Isn't it strange? Isn't it sometimes quite hurtful how sometimes even our closest friends have at times let us down? Isn't it even, even more painful when we realise that we have often let people down when we know that we should not have? But we have Jesus who will never, never disappoint. Never let us down. Then verses 35 and 36. Have a look at Mark's emphasis here. <laughs> In verse 31, talking about going to a quiet place. Verse 32 talks about this heading off to this solitary place. And verse 35, this, you know, they describe it as a remote place. That's what it was before the crowds arrived. But the day is ending. It's getting late. The disciples could see a crisis looming in this remote place. There was no supermarket. There were no shops. There was nothing near. And uh, people were already miles from home. They'd been away all day. They'd be hungry. They'd be tired. What's to do? And the disciples, well, they had a, they had a very uh, novel solution to it, a very human solution, very practical solution. Well, Lord, you know, before they get too hungry and too hungry, send them away, send them away. Uh, you know, so they can, well, basically... Uh, leave them to their own devices. Let them look after themselves. In verse 37, Jesus uh, disagrees with that. And, and I'm sure he shocks them, utterly shocks them, and at the same time challenges them. He says, no, 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 no. He says, you feed them. You feed them. What? Are you crazy? 5,000 plus people around no shops, nothing. Think how much it will take to feed these people, even if they're wearing shops and things around. And there, stretching before them, was this vast and restless crowd of more than 5,000 people. And they were all tired, they were all hungry, and they were all expectant. <clears throat> and the disciples were getting all rational, started to count the cost, even if there were local shops, even if there were. But, uh, you know, they weren't able to afford that. It would take eight months' wages to feed a crowd like this. Where, where are we going to get eight months' wages? Where are we going to get the shops? And so on. <clears throat> and, of course, those who <laughs> would be familiar with the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, would maybe remember that Moses <clears throat> was with Israel in the desert. Numbers chapter 11. People were grumbling. And uh, <clears throat> Moses said, where can I get meat for all these people? They kept wailing at me, give us meat to eat. And uh, <clears throat> then Moses continues in verse 22 of that chapter. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? And then of course God provided quails for the people to eat. <clears throat> that was Moses, but here we have Jesus. The disciples were utterly helpless, but Jesus wasn't. And so in verses 38 to 40, the Lord Jesus asks, How much food do we have? And then they were able to produce five barley loaves. They're like little rolls and two dried fish. John tells us, of course, that these were supplied by a young lad, probably part of his picnic. 
and uh, they were made available to the disciples. And of course, these things are just a, a complete and utter drop in the bucket. Humanly speaking, a ridiculous amount for so many people. And yet the Lord Jesus goes ahead and he instructs his disciples to seat the crowd in groups of a hundred and in groups of fifty. God is a God of order, not confusion. And his divine son is the same. <clears throat> and so the disciples, they divide them all up and into rows and so on. And what was going to be happening next? Well, in verse 41, we see that the Lord Jesus looks to his heavenly Father and he gives thanks for the food. Now, a common Jewish prayer uh, at mealtimes in these days would go something like this. Praise be to you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all you have created. I can just imagine the Lord Jesus lifting his hands and his eyes to heaven, to his heavenly Father, and giving thanks for the food. Isn't that beautiful? Sorry about that. But uh, there we go. He's giving thanks for the food. And uh, many in the crowd would possibly be reminded of that Old Testament incident, another one, where the prophet Elisha once fed a hundred with only twenty, he had twenty rows, mind you, and only a hundred people, and there was some left over. But there's one greater than Moses and one greater than Elisha was standing before the crowd that day, the divine Son of God. You see, who is this Jesus? Do you see what the Gospel writers are, are doing here? In every incident in which they portray Jesus, they are pointing to who he is. They are pointing to his identity. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Standing there, five loaves, two fish, 5,000 people, he gives thanks for the food. And what does he do with it? And who is he? Well, <clears throat> there he is, the divine Son of God, the Messiah. Note these words. He took bread, blessed it, breaking it, giving it to the disciples. Same words, very similar words used to describe the Last Supper, where the Lord Jesus <clears throat> used that to institute a memorial meal for him in the breaking of bread. We refer to it sometimes as communion and what believers have done ever since he commanded us to do so. And we will be doing that later. And then we come to verse 42. And Mark, he's typically, typically brief uh, and very matter of fact here. In fact, I think this is absolutely astounding. <clears throat> we have just read about and people have just witnessed an amazing, an amazing miracle. Now, I mean, all miracles are amazing, or they wouldn't be miracles. <laughs> By nature, a miracle is amazing. But this is a very, very amazing miracle, when you think about it. And what does Mark say? He says in verse 42, they all ate, and they all had enough. But that's it. Just moves on. I think, Mark, can you not make more of that? 
But uh, there we go. That, that's what he says. They all ate and they all had enough. Isn't that amazing? And so this miracle speaks powerfully of the way the Lord Jesus can, can meet the deepest needs no matter how great or how complicated or how challenging our needs may be. Many of the followers of the Lord Jesus have experienced this, not only in the time of the Lord Jesus as he was on this earth, but down through history until today, as they have followed him, taken him at his word, believed in him, and acted for his glory. And our needs today, yeah, it's the same. Jesus can meet them. Jesus can meet them. Even our deepest needs. Even when we think that we've come to an end of ourselves. And often <clears throat> when Heidi and I were in Istanbul, we would be in a situation where we would really come to way beyond what our own experience had ever taught us. Way beyond our own knowledge. We were utterly and totally out of our depths. And what to do? What to do? But to throw ourselves on the wisdom and on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And time and time again, the Lord Jesus supplied. And time and time again, the Lord Jesus unraveled a situation which didn't look as if it could ever, ever be solved. Time and time again, he would clear a way through and things would dissipate and peace would enter. And that's Jesus. <clears throat> and today, he is the same. In verse 43, well, there's more. Because there's lots left over. <laughs> Started off with five loaves and two fish. And now we've got 12 baskets left over. The disciples, what do they do? Well, they carefully collect it all. You see, God is a generous God. He is generous to overflowing. But there's no waste allowed either. <clears throat> and the leftovers are collected up and they're used again. And this is also a lesson to our wasteful society in which we live today. We Christians who believe in a creator God who created this universe, brought it into being, who sustains it daily by the word of his power. Why do we not take care of his creation more than we do? Why aren't we at the forefront of environmental concerns? But we'll leave that to the humanists. But surely, in our doctrine of creation, we have more reason than anyone to see that this world, although one day it will be wrapped up, but until that time, we have been given stewardship of his creation. And then we think about the wasteful society in which we live. We see these 12 basketfuls taken up. They're going to be used again, that food. How dare we leave the food, such food on the side of the plate. Oh, Lauren <clears throat> has a little job at uh, Glasgow Hilton and waitressing and things at times and sometimes said how shocked she is at the amount of food that people waste, leave on the side of their plate. How dare we bring up our children to think that they can leave stuff. 
You know, how dare we do that? God is a God who is generous and a God who does not like waste. And then we have these baskets that are, are, are cleared up <coughs> and, and collected up. And, uh, <coughs> and then we, we see how all these, these baskets are brought together and they will be used. And then in verse 44, we want to have a look at the notes and the details of numbers given <coughs> in each of these accounts. Now, it's interesting because this is the only miracle, as far as I know, that is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew chapter 14, Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6, as well as here in Mark chapter 6. And each of, <coughs> in Mark and Luke, they record the rows of hundreds and fifties. And all of them record the five rows and the two fish. And John, of course, records the young man who brought them. They all record the twelve baskets. They all record the five thousand men. And uh, this must have, this miracle must have made an enormous impact on everyone. So many details recorded. And of course, to explain this event away, because a person who doesn't believe in miracles just won't do. This is a historical event recorded in each of the four Gospels and embedded in the minds and the experiences of people who were there. Not as well as that, it says 5,000 men. <clears throat> now, the word here actually means, I was going to say male men, but, well, all men are males. And, uh, <clears throat> but it, the word actually means 5,000 men were present. We also know that there were some women and children who were present as well, because Matthew 14 and 21 tells us that there were some present, but the, the majority, it seems, were men. Why is that? Well, Galilee was a hotbed of Jewish nationalistic activity. There were many insurgency movements against the Roman oppressors at that time, and most of these insurgency movements came from the Galilee region. We've seen how it was all kind of remote and, and so on. People could go into the desert, they could get a band of people together, get a leader together, and they could try to rise up and do something against Rome, you see? And uh, <clears throat> that's the kind of thing that was, that was happening. And there would be many, I would think, nationalistic men in that region and who may well have been very impressed with Jesus. And the teaching of the kingdom of God they saw him as a potential leader for their next nationalistic struggle. John records that after this miraculous event, the men there tried to make him their leader. John 6 and 15, John tells us that. The event took place in a solitary area where insurgencies can easily begin. The crowd was like sheep without a shepherd. They needed a leader to galvanize them. And right after this, Mark tells us that Jesus bundled his disciples off in a boat and he dismissed the crowds and he went off by himself. Verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd and after leaving them, he went away to pray. You see this whole immediately. Jesus got, got out of the situation immediately. And maybe this is why the crowd was so intent on in following Jesus into the desert. Maybe many of them wanted to make him their leader. And you see, the Lord Jesus throughout his time on earth was often in danger of being kidnapped 
or hijacked by some kind of political or religious movement. And of course today is no different. Today some scholars, as reading a book uh, just some time ago by a New Testament scholar called Jesus and the Zealots. The Zealots were a sort of insurgent movement at the time in the Galilee area. And he said, yeah, Jesus was a zealot, you see. And of course in Jesus' own day, down through history until today, people have attempted to interpret Jesus for their own ends and for their own causes. And it's a Jesus that has been made in their own image. Often with a little bit of truth thrown in and the rest made up of their own agenda. The Galilean zealots, they wanted a powerful, charismatic political leader. In the late 19th, early 20th century, the, the social gospel movement. They said, well look, you know, Jesus cares for the poor and for the downtrodden. Is that true? Of course it's true. And then they went on to say, to, to claim him for their own social and humanistic vision. And then, of course, in the <clears throat> mid-1920s, um, <clears throat> the liberal theologians the, uh, <clears throat> who, who came with the, the liberation theology, I remember when I was studying in London, studying theology, and I remember there was, uh, we got to hear different uh, theologians who were really up on their game at the time, and, and Jürgen Moltmann uh, came to London, and he was one of the main liberation theologians of the day. And uh, just listening to him, what a dynamic speaker uh, he was. But of course, his, his theories were taken by many South American uh, people and, and basically galvanized them into a sort of a terrorist uh, insurgent movement against oppression in South America. And of course, they claimed the Lord Jesus. Now, the Lord Jesus <laughs> it was not there to lead a rebellion with guns and so on. But they, they claimed Jesus for themselves, you see. A little bit of Jesus' teaching and the rest, of course, their own agenda. And then, of course, today, our postmodern emergence, eh, many of them, they want to interpret the Lord Jesus as a postmodern Jesus. So what postmodern people aren't into, the reality of the fall, the reality of human sinful nature, the reality of an oncoming judgment, uh, well, neither is their postmodern Jesus into that, you see. And so what image do we have of Jesus today? Do we dare to create him in our own image? Or are we willing to bow to his authority and recognize that he is who he said he was? That he is who the gospel writers are pointing to his identity all the time? the divine Son of God, that he came to do what he said he'd come to do, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men, that in him alone we can have forgiveness of sins and a living relationship with God. In John 14 and 6, with the next slide coming up, John 14 and 6, um, <clears throat> we can see that uh, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. And in this miracle we see a glimpse of his divinity.
of his power, of his authority, of his compassion, and also his provision for, for our sinfulness. And so if we're hungry for reality, for forgiveness, for salvation, for God, then we must come to Jesus. And so John records Jesus' words, and it's an invitation moving to the next slide. John chapter 6 and verse 35 says, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. That's an invitation to all of us from the divine Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the divine Son of God who came to die on a cross so that we might know forgiveness of sin and peace with God. Let's just take time to pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for all that we've seen today in this passage. And we just think about the Lord Jesus. And thank you for him, Father. Pray that we would follow him with all of our hearts. Give our lives, give our everything to him. And know that he is the Son of God. We give thanks in his name. Amen.